0: The Accidental Engineer. Welcome all. Max of The Accidental Engineer here. Today we are joined by Elena Rathiovskaya. Hey, Max. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, For our audience that don't know who you are, (laughs) do you mind uh, introducing a little bit about yourself and what your background is?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, I'm Elena, and I'm a decision scientist at Facebook.
0: I should preface this by saying that the views that Elena expresses in this conversation are not those of her employer. Uh, yeah, don't hold her to that. <laughs> so Elena, what is decision science?
1: Decision scientists, they focus on enabling business stakeholders to make better decisions. And so hence the, the name, the word decision is right there.
0: I'll highlight this, since I don't think you did, is that you are a manager I of decision scientists? That. I am, I am. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about what the day-to-day of uh, managing decision scientists looks like and maybe how how you spend your day.
1: So I definitely, you know, still want to make it clear that decision scientists day is not any different as a data scientist or an analyst day. So we wouldn't focus on what's special about the, you know, sure, the sure. decision part of this. So basically I'm a manager in an analytics organization. So I have about 10 people uh, working in, uh, in my team and we all are focusing on supporting uh, like one business vertical or like one group of product at Facebook that that we have marketing organization support. Uh, My job sits within the marketing uh, organization at Facebook. Um, My main stakeholders internally are marketing professionals who are helping our users learn about uh, Facebook products and we help educate and inspire consumers about Facebook uh, portfolio of products. That includes Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, others. We also serve our service back to the organization, to the larger Facebook, because we help them kind of hear the voice of consumers. So we are this conduit between the consumers and the product organization. And this is a complicated job for the marketing and it's best done when it uses data to either further the understanding of consumers or to make uh, smart and more effective marketing interventions. And marketing intervention is essentially, uh, it's, a, it's a way to have a conversation with consumer um, that has a goal of delighting and inspiring and educating these consumers.
0: For people who might not know how marketing is verticalized, maybe, or what the verticals are, I mean, one way I guess people might imagine it or think about it is each of the tabs in the mobile app yeah. it represents a vertical. Is that fair to say?
1: That could be, yeah, that would be one way. The way it works for me is there's several of those tabs that are relevant, and they're all under umbrella of entertainment. So I support uh, Facebook video, like Facebook watch, and uh, Facebook games. And essentially, gaming, it's called gaming. <laughs> and uh, essentially what's unifying them is entertainment, because that's kind of the value that the users get out of using the app. So um it's very arbitrary uh, if you're, you know, any analytics organization you encounter the way um, the teams are structured. So I would say it's not; it doesn't bear too much meaning that the entertainment products are grouped together to be supported by the same team.
0: So walking back to exactly uh, why you're an awesome guest to have on the show is that you really are a, an excellent engineer, in the fact that. Your undergraduate degree was definitely not computer science, yeah. you did psychology, correct? Yeah, yeah. And uh, even so far as doing graduate work. Yeah. So for people who are curious how you found your way to what you're doing today, Yeah. what happened? That's
1: that definitely, uh, you know, I would, would like to say that it's an unusual story, but actually I heard another podcast uh, on Accidental Engineer by another data scientist, and she made exactly the same statement. She, she, she likes to think that uh, her, actually, I don't remember her name, but she's from Weight Watchers. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, uh, Michelle Blazer. Mich-
1: Michelle, right? Yeah. And she mentioned that, you know, she likes to think her story is unique, but everybody's stories are unique. And that's what I noticed in data science. So we don't have everybody in the data science teams, everybody having gone through the same educational path, right? Some people came from computer science. Some people came from statistics. And my path was... Uh, uh, several steps, you know, I started with an undergrad in psychology in Russia and I uh been Last year a student um, in my educational uh, track. I my undergrad um, program I applied to grad school here in the United States and In fact speaking of how accidental it was I was very interested in the work of one professor Charles Osgood who worked at the University of Illinois in 1960s and in Russia if there is a certain like school of thought that you know that gets developed uh, on basis on an educational um, institution like at the university, there is like a school of thought that furthers for for decades afterwards, and so you can count that if you land there forty years later, there will be a body of research that's very active. So I applied to a school that had you know had this new, uh, uh, professor worked at in the sixties. When I landed here, it was actually entirely different work, but that's okay still. (laughs) It was plenty of interesting work done, and um, the department where I landed, uh, or division, was quantitative psychology. So the quantitative piece, right, it actually implies mathematical methods, computational uh, methods, um, in order to help further psychology as a field. Uh, So it really is kind of a methodology type of skill set, research methodology. And part of that program, also, a requirement for that program was to complete a master's in stats. So that's what I did. And essentially, I became what you could say uh, an analytics professional because there, I mean, maybe now there are programs that actually train you to be an, an analyst, but 20 years ago, you would have people completing degrees in applied statistics, biostatistics, quantitative psychology, psychometrics, chemometrics, and computer science also had the trap. And all of these people have skill sets or oh, public health uh, analysis, right, uh, from Michelle. And all those skill sets are welcome. And even today, when we form the teams, we love people representing very different fields of study because the innovation happens when you bring approaches or like thinking from a different discipline into a well-established kind of like set of practices, and this, um, you know, this is where like uh, new methods actually um, get invented.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. For people who are curious about the leap from academia into industry, how did that happen for you? What was your, yeah. what was the decision that you made?
1: So uh, it's true that being in academia and starting a graduate program and I yeah, completed my Ph.D. And then I also worked as a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University doing uh, brain imaging. It's, it's pretty cool. It's like scanning the brains to uh, help understand how the brains work. Um, so a stellar path would have been to become a professor and teach. And however, um, there are fewer jobs in, industry, in academia then there are people exiting graduate programs. And so another way to uh, further your career, if you don't stay in academia, is to look for a job in an industry and, and you have to convince uh, anybody in the, in, uh, you know, folks who you're applying with that you actually cut out to do the job. And now I'm on the side of the hiring. We are hiring at Facebook. Please <laughs> <Things are> apply. <laughs> um, I realize that it is risky. When you have somebody who excelled and succeeded in academia, it doesn't mean that they will excel in industry right away. There needs to be a change of uh, of mindset to really focus on actionability of work and on like very fast pace. In academia, uh, slow and and very you know um, detailed and thorough approaches are actually how the science gets built. There is no rush inside. We don't rush with drug trials or anything like this. In business, if you are uh, slow and thorough, you might miss the train, right? So there is a rule of low dimension return or 80-20 rules, you know, job uh, better better done than perfect, right? If it's 80% done and like you can make a business decision based on this, you move on. So these particular differences in philosophy actually was something that I was very cognizant on and I was seeking this. I was seeking very fast-paced and a very kind of full of impact. I call it short-term impact and action, you know, kind of action, actionability of my work type of arrangement. Um, and, right, the challenge is when you talk to an employer, how do you uh, convince them that all the skills that you've had, and that's absolutely true, that skills that you build throughout the uh, academic training, Communication skills, problem solving, um, and like, you know, work with information, a lot of quantitative skills as well, because it was a lot of scripts. Mostly, Most of my work was in front of the computer and coding, right? Speaking of um, becoming an engineer, becoming a coder first. Um, so that part was difficult, as in, like, it was scary. How do I convince the uh, the, the employer? And at Stanford, they actually had a very good career uh career advice in um, classes or whatnot. And I went to a couple of lectures specifically aimed at talking to postdocs or researchers or folks who are like bit advanced, uh, already advanced in their academic standing. And they gave a tip. They said, uh, you know, go and practice your pitch. Talk to anybody. Find friends or find friends of friends who have made the leap to them so you practice your way to present uh, wh- how you know what's your value add, what you can offer and try to figure out what are the various like places where PhDs land even though that's not what they were trained for originally. that's what I did and it took me one month and I got my first job at a, a gaming company. Um, was games for Facebook accidentally. <laughs> Not related, right? Uh, it was like a, pl- a company called Playdom, and think of them as a to Zynga. You must have heard of Zynga. Mm-hmm. So, as I was, um, as I entered them, immediately they were bought by Disney. I don't think that's because <laughs> they just uh, hired me, but maybe that I did the well. <laughs> yeah. value. Yeah. Uh, and I worked at Disney for four years as a um, games analyst. So analysts of user behavior in games, helping improve games. So they um, you know, provide better, more engaging, more attentive experience for users. Uh, then there were two more steps in my career after Disney. Um, I worked for a couple of years for a research company, a Comscore. This is the company that measures internet. And after Comscore, that's my last stop, is uh, Facebook. And so this is, I'm in the marketing and helping marketers do their best job, helping them um, um, make data-driven decisions.
0: One of the the questions I thought of as you were telling this part of the story is about the course or a class uh, that Stanford offered Mm -hmm. uh, that you took as a postdoc. And I'm curious if you had been a postdoc anywhere else. Would there have been such a course? Like, is that a common thing at universities? Or is it something unique to the Bay Area and Silicon Valley maybe?
1: So, uh, I, you know, I'm not like exposed to too many. Uh, maybe I haven't uh, checked out every university where they have that offering. I would imagine my bias is that um, Stanford and Berkeley and like some of the Bay Area and maybe uh, Boston universities, they're more accustomed to, Postdocs and like advanced degree holders uh, Switching to industry or looking for opportunities in the industry. So there you're more likely to find such an open and welcoming environment Like it's actually normal. It's a norm to uh, To consider options outside of academia other more traditional places where I've been at like the University of Illinois at that time right now they actually have some like entrepreneurship support uh, programs but at that time, it was very unusual and unknown for somebody to look, you know, actively and openly for um, a job outside of academia. Usually, we would, like, learn about this as a fact, like, it happened so-and-so, quit the program, and joined uh, McKinsey or um, some of the consulting firms, or and that usually was considered, like, an exception. So that I was not aware of any open support or education opportunities to like help me make that move. But these days, you know, maybe uh, maybe we should look harder. But I would say if you don't have something like that at your university and you're really curious and you're looking, tap into the alumni network. And every university has alumni network. Find somebody who looks like based on their LinkedIn profile, they'll land it where you want to be or you're curious about being, get in touch with them. I found, like, I myself am very open to having, like, phone conversations to advise anybody who's curious, and nobody ever told no to me when I reached out and I asked for their time. 30 minutes phone conversation, very unassuming, right? Tons of information. So it's kind of like way of mentoring of giving back to the, to, to the institution you're from. Definitely, uh, like, a
0: cool technique. Definitely, I I agree, and we'll also include a link in the show notes to Elena's LinkedIn. If yeah, <laughs> people want to take her up on this yes yes. But yeah, I um, back to the question I was asking earlier about the day to day, the day to day of what you do. Yeah, I, you manage this team of ten. Yeah. Um, what What is what, what do is, we do? Yeah, what do, yeah. You yeah. do you do? What
1: do we do? So we have this team of stakeholders, right? Our main stakeholders are internal. Like think of them as your clients and they're project marketing managers. So these people are the you know strategists, uh, masterminds behind uh, the, the, the marketing work. Um, so we engage with them end to end on both uh, trying to understand the audiences. So that would include maybe write, writing some SQL queries against uh, internal databases to understand how consumers engage with our products, right? Do people spend time on this tab that I'm supporting or are they dropping out and maybe like when do they do this and um, so this almost think of this as a little bit of uh, user research but it's all with the angle of trying to aggregate this as an audience so think of these people uh, consumers as uh, consumer segments audiences that you eventually want to talk to so an audience is some it's like a, a group of people who probably will have you will engage with them using similar language or message. They probably have some shared needs or like shared concerns or barriers that marketing could help address. So this is the part we call the inbound research. So this is understanding your consumers and also helps, um, you know, the, the targeting itself as a strategy. It helps thinking about the users. Well, maybe it's not actually a body of people who are very similar, Maybe we can break them out into consumer segments. And this is like a very standard um, type of value add that uh, analytics add to marketing, is user segmentation. Uh, of course, to do this work, right, there is a lot of hands-on uh, hands data exploration. So there is SQL queries to, uh, typically to tap into the data stores um, that, you know, exist at, at Facebook. So that's the preparation to the marketing. Then there is a lot of work on deciding which channel for the marketing is you know, best for the case. And it really depends on what the goal is for the whole marketing program. And the, I kind of glossed it over, but that's the beginning. The beginning of any conversation is what are we trying to do, right? What is the business objective? How is that, what is the marketing objective and does it support business? And actually it looks like, uh, uh, I mean, everybody in the organization has this discipline to uh, be very KPI driven and, and be very focused on objectives. An analyst kind of often serves as this like uh, party that helps kind of keep everybody accountable to stick into the same discipline there, right? So um, setting the goals, making sure that, you know, figuring out how the goals ladder up across different units into the same company level goals. So, being kind of this like goalkeeper, but not being the external party who decides who the, what the goal is, doing this in partnership with the stakeholders. So, yes.
0: I was gonna ask, yeah. I know a lot of our audience probably knows what a KPI is, yes. but for audience that don't know what a yeah. KPI is, what yeah. is a KPI?
1: Yeah, so KPI is key performance indicator. And think of the, uh, of KPI as a metric that helps you know uh, how well you're doing. So, uh, I would say in health, for example, Uh, our objective is to be healthy but blood pressure or weight or blood sugar those are three different kpis each of them is a a kind of um, one aspect it reflects like one aspect of being healthy and in combination all of them drive the overall health index score or your well-being and different teams often would be focusing on like one KPI at a time, but just like an example that I gave, all those three KPIs could be uh, like, you know, sugar, um, did I bring example, blood uh, pressure, blood sugar and uh, weight, right? You would do different things to to improve each of these uh, indicators, but importantly so, all three end up leading up to the same one, which is your health, and in the analogy that's the like the company well-being and typically wall street tells us <laughs> totally. if the company is not doing well probably our kpis you know uh, aren't pointing at the right thing
0: that's actually a great segue to the topic of working for a company that's a publicly traded company versus maybe one that's not disney is also publicly traded yeah but you worked at comscore no. What, how, how different is that? What, how does that affect your day-to-day, knowing that your employer is either public or private? I actually don't
1: know if Comscore is, I think, a public,
0: too. Oh, okay. But
1: uh, this actually goes to show, like, for me personally, like, how that's so important. What I can, though, tell is, like, play when they were before they were acquired by Disney. That was definitely a startup, right? So let me address rather working for a startup for a smaller team versus the larger team as a data scientist especially, there's big differences. Working for a smaller team as a startup, you just do a lot, you wear multiple hats, so you do a lot of end-to-end. As a data scientist, this means sometimes you would make your own data, or like you would cleanse your own data, prepare them, so do the job of a data engineer. And sometimes you would even do the job of a data, like a database administrator, like database is down, what do we do? And uh, so there is this joke um, that, well, I shouldn't have revealed that as a joke. The data scientists spend like 90% of their time like cleaning and preparing data. And then they spend the remaining 10% of the time complaining. How annoying they're <laughs> about having to do the, the first 90%. But actually, I would say definitely for me, the game changer in a bigger company was that I could rely on other teams to take care of foundation foundational infrastructure. If the database is down, there's a whole team of people who will work on bringing it up. And so I, as an analyst, I can focus more on um, doing like actual analysis or even writing that story and finding the data evidence to continue this, you know, evolving or developing this story, uh, as opposed to kind of working on sourcing the ingredients. And Actually, I wouldn't say that means that always, you know, uh, I would recommend always going with a bigger company where you can do only analytics and pure analytics. Because by working, um, you know, multiple jobs, doing real good data engineering, database administration, all this, you probably uh, gain like a broader set of skills. So at Disney, for example, or as we were transitioning from Playdome to Disney, I've done a lot of data engineering work, uh, developing a data model for our mobile games as we just started to venture into mobile games development. And that's not something that they would trust me to do at Facebook today, right? Because they like, cannot not qualified for this. Uh, they have people who studied for this. But at Disney, I'm part of a smaller team. Uh, it was an opportunity to, uh, to you know, try this and like, figure it all out. And now I can tell I understand really what it means to build a data model. And it helps me. Being a better analyst, uh, since uh, when I'm using the data, I can see, I can understand the justification, motivation for the structure behind the data set that's provided to me, and those design decisions, like architectural decisions made by a DE, they're just helpful um, for the for the analyst to know like where to look for the data or like what to expect from the data.
0: Are there blind spots or things that people who come from startups to a bigger company might be ignorant about when it comes to them being uh, developed as a more generalist in data analytics uh, versus the more specific types of tasks that someone on your team might be doing? Like You probably interview a fair amount of candidates. You see ones who might have worked at startups versus... People who might be coming from other large tech companies.
1: So in a large organization, when you have hit like you have more than ten people in a team, you can afford and you should uh, try to have a very diverse slate of people based not only based on like you know educational background, like I talked about, cognitive scientists and computer scientists and more humanities like social sciences, but also we want to have both generalists as well as. Uh, super experts and there are even archetypes um, to different type of data scientists that Facebook would hire people that are more quant and have you know less developed soft skills or people who are more um, almost you know like they might may have um, maybe less super deep expertise in any area but they're really good super connectors they connect the, the people and connect the topics in fact I'd say every successful person um, Is probably like a T shaped person. So they have T shaped means uh, they know uh, everything about something and something about everything, right? So um, in this case, people who come from startups, like we really value that they have this um, hands on kind of they can figure anything out. So it's a really strong innovation and problem solving abilities without blueprint, you know, without um, recipe, they would. Conquer um, absolutely new projects and often a company for they're new for company as well. We really haven't done that before. Then, once we have maybe established that okay, we are doing this, I don't know, this type of measurement, this type of methodology is becoming a standard and norm at Facebook, um, then we might want to, like, artificial intelligence based, I don't know, like clustering, we might want to start hiring super hardcore experts. Who have had done two postdocs on the topic as well uh, but it really is kind of depends how where this topic is in the life cycle for the organization and as an orga- organization will have like multiple areas of expertise that are a different life stage that's why uh, if you you know basically large organization can absorb anybody like you shouldn't feel worried about is my skill set is just right? At least Facebook is at this point. Anybody brilliant that I know, like I know, there will be a place for them. The trick is just to like find where exactly is the place where they would be super uh, useful.
0: Uh, coming back to what you were describing earlier about uh, how stakeholders that are coworkers of yours uh, come to you with a problem, they're basically your clients. Yes. Uh, and you emphasized how important it is to get a clear objective. Yes. And I was wondering if you have any examples of this applies anywhere. Any anyone might work mm. uh, of examples of when uh, objectives might be less clear, or mm. um, what happens when people fail to uh, define their objectives up front very clearly. Yeah. Is is have you seen? Projects that have failed because of that, or um, yeah, what what happens to projects that might not have clear objectives?
1: So um, clear objective, and if it's like clear, and if it's unambiguous, and if it's precise, and also um, aligned with uh, basically business, you know, objective, so marketing objective aligned with business objective, um, means that the teams are really focused and coordinated and like anything they do, it like helps further their objective. An example of a more vague objective would be, we want to win in North America. What does that mean? Like, what does winning look like, right? So even defining that uh, already f- uh, furthers you. And it could be typically for any, you know, web app or a game or um, web or mobile app, um, typically there are, um, possible objectives would be like to grow, like to have increased number of users, or it could be revenue. And these two not necessarily are correlated. You know, if you have more users, it doesn't mean that uh, you will have proportionally just as much revenue, since um, as you grow any kind of app, uh, your first adopt early adopters, your first users um, tend to monetize better. And then you as you expand your offering to, like, broader audiences, you're onboarding maybe a little bit, users who are less likely to retain, users who will, like, consume less of your content or, you know, buy less of your products. So uh, figuring out, like, do you want to win as in, like, show really good revenue per user KPIs, right? Which could be one of the arguments, you know, in the Wall Street, right? Those are the the stats that um, investors pay attention to, monetization per user, or is it about, Having a user base that maybe is on par with other competitors, even if it's uh, if you are like even not uh, what is it, not profitable is that way like, um, you like losing yeah. revenue literally like you invest in marketing more than you are uh, um, more than uh, than you are making on those customers. So this is an example. Any business would have to make that decision. Like, are we growing to to uh? to have like you know bigger user base and then we will figure out how to monetize them or are we do we want to be profitable from day one so that's a good example where just saying we want to grow the the app and install users that's not precise, uh,
0: precise enough that was a really good answer to a really bad question <laughs> so thank you for giving such a clear answer uh, one question i tend to ask guests on the show is about Things that you're excited about in the future, technologies wise? Mm. Um, I'm sure there are a set of tools, both in house and maybe open source, that uh, you've used in your roles. Uh, But are there certain technologies that you're particularly excited about, or even beyond technologies, maybe methodologies?
1: So, I mean, in general, like in life, I feel like uh, we don't know enough, like we're sciences, we don't know enough. Uh, about like our body and health and like, our, you know, our longevity and like well-being So I feel like probably the next breakthrough will be like, Medical or biological research. So so we like we will finally figure out like how to get healthier and uh, Not get sick. So that's you know the excitement um, That you know I care about and Okay, Facebook doesn't really play in that field yet for Facebook, it's ARVR is where there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. I know if you follow, you know, there are uh, gaming products like Oculus hardware and we have Portal as a, uh, like a hardware like a device that you can use to call um, family and friends on the other side of the globe. So that's probably, uh, that's probably, I would say, I would, we will probably see a lot of innovation in the next uh, couple of decades. But what I'm confident about is like whatever my kids will come up with, I, like, I can't right now even imagine what it will be. It will be entirely different and mind-blowing just because I could not imagine our grandparents uh, have foreseen <laughs> what the world will be like in 2020. So um, there is a lot of um, progress or something new out there that I just have no idea what to expect.
0: Do you think that in 20, 30 years we'll still be using SQL?
1: Um, Okay, that's a great question. We probably will, just like we will use arithmetics and, you know, some, like, (laughs) fundamentals. Um, There's a lot of, uh, at least as a data scientist, I often get asked about the tools that we use, and it's a little bit embarrassing, especially to admit uh, on a podcast that everybody will hear, but I use a lot of Excel. Um, And as a data scientist, right, Sure, I could do R, Python, but it's it's not about um, it's not about how complex the code that I can write. It's about quick accessibility uh, of uh, you know uh, simple numbers that I can um, build my reasoning around and further the story. So SQL, in that sense, is I think it's like incredibly sim- like power in its simplicity. Uh, and every company that I worked at, like SQL, was my bread and butter. I have to spend probably 40 time, 40% of my time just writing SQL queries. So it almost becomes so natural, like you're like writing, you're typing, you're like writing a query uh, to get an answer. You're not even thinking about, is this code? How do I implement this? You express your thinking thoughts in SQL. So uh, I don't see right now how in 20, 30 years that would be replaced as a, like a language of reasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that connects the data to the business questions.
0: Mm-hmm. When it comes to maybe what you might do in Excel, you're working with maybe the output of a SQL query. Let's say, yeah. um, I know, I know this is getting in the weeds a little bit, but mm-hmm. why? What What is uh, what elevates Excel over maybe Google Sheets today, and what What might the next generation of uh, exploratory data analysis tools look like that maybe Excel is lacking today?
1: Actually, in this case, when I say Excel, I think spreadsheets. So, Google and Excel total parity, in, in, you know, with respect to this basic uh, kind of like actually, it's uh, I do a lot of uh, simulations or forecasting or some kind of like scenario planning using simple formulas in the spreadsheets. And uh, in this case, Google, you know, Google spreadsheets do from, for me, Excel, because uh, we can share. I can share the spreadsheets with, without OneDrive or some, uh, with anybody, right? Everybody today has actually a Gmail account, and so we can collaborate easily. So that would be my preference, uh, collaborative, uh, collaborative uh, tools.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. One of the hot topics I I know it has been covered on the podcast before is around um, maybe reproducibility of analysis. And yeah. uh, one of the hot technologies is Jupyter or Python notebooks yeah. and having your analytics be reproducible yeah. maybe as data changes underlying right. your report uh, and also r- reviewing the uh, history of revisions that have been made to yeah. an analysis yeah. kind of like re- reviewing revisions to software yeah. uh, does that does that have any uh, importance to the types of work that you do or is it is the research that you and your team do more ad hoc and um, it's not so important to retain your analysis to review it maybe six months oh, no now?
1: no for sure like, this is the standard actually so if you're in Python you would do J- Jupyter Notebooks. If you're an R, then you would use like R Markdown and uh, basically publish your analysis with all the code behind. And so other analysts could review it and it could be also reused to apply to new data sets. This is like part of being effective as a data scientist or decision scientist is to scale your work. Sometimes right often you would like move faster than your document so if you as you iterate through like entirely new proof of concept So this exploratory analysis you might not think of packaging them So it would be like kind of poking around but the moment that you want to seek feedback You want to share with somebody else and discuss like being like hey I want to run by you this analysis that I've done and you know typically would be either presenting work that's done 30% or 30% complete or 70% complete, right? And those are two different modes um, of sharing that we often um, employ in our internal team meetings, so meeting with other decision scientists. So uh, this becomes the uh, like a whiteboard, right? This shared code, uh, because it's impossible to explain methodology without refer- referencing the code and the, you know maybe even giving um, your peer opportunity to poke around with the data on their own. I found myself when I'm asked to like look over somebody else's shoulder at their code, my hand just like reaches for the mouse. Mm -hmm. Like I need to move the mouse around to like engage with the code, right? So uh, I am hand, kind of right, is a tool instrumental for my brain to start understanding what's going on. So like I need to scroll at my own pace. And uh, that's why if you publish a workbook publish or share uh, like a notebook with code, you get high quality feedback and input from the other analysts.
0: Fair enough, fair enough. Is is our uh, tools like Git something that uh, you use in uh, combination with yeah. notebooks yeah. or with, uh, I guess Google Sheets has their own version control? So inside. see,
1: so there's like so many different tools. So it, like I've worked with, uh, in different organizations, I work with all of these uh, different technologies, you know, and like Git or SVN and there is always a preference for one or another. I would say um, teams where I worked at who also build kind of like data products, so it would be maybe like a pipeline or a, um, like, um, a piece of ETL, or maybe um, a script that runs the model every day to score users. So when we have basically production code, Uh, That's where it's absolutely essential that you have version control and also a discipline in um, making modifications because we work with, you know, multiple people in a team and I always, you know, when we work with the team We always make sure that there is at least one more person who is familiar with your work So you're not a single point of failure. If you're not available, you're taking a day off. There is like cross-pollination of knowledge so uh, having this up, updates made to the code, they actually, not only they have to be tracked, they, uh, ideally, they also reviewed and approved by somebody else, right, like a, a diff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of uh, standard. When it comes to ad hoc analytics, often uh, when it's ad hoc, you know, it's like, you, I'm only doing it once for this special case. I don't anticipate that I'll be like doing it again. Uh, so I would say becomes you value moving fast. Um, a little bit over kind of this discipline. So that's where sometimes you wouldn't see revision history beyond the revision history on the
0: docs. Totally, totally. Well, Elena, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, in the show notes, we'll include links. Uh, check them out on the episode page, including one link to uh, Elena's LinkedIn if people want to take her up on her offer of chatting about data science and uh, careers. So. Yeah. Alina, thanks for coming on.
1: Thanks for having me. It was lots of fun.
0: For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.